a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you are ready to engage in wrong think, my friend, you are in the right place. It's what I do on a daily basis, not because, you know, I have the answers to anything of great importance, but just because there is so much information to deal with nowadays, I'm doing the best I can to persuade everybody within earshot, anybody within the sound of my voice, to think for themselves, to think a little more critically, a little more, a little more deeply, and just don't take anything at face value. And by the way, that includes anything that I'm saying or anything that I choose to share with you. So, with that in mind, I wanted to share with you something that I have found to be extremely valuable advice. I was very lucky, and today on my Facebook memories, uh, this article popped up, and I haven't seen this for a few years. I I can't remember the, the first time I shared it. It was a while back. But it's the art of letting others be right. And if you've been looking for peace of mind in your life, I want to recommend this as one of the best ways to make that happen. So let me give you an example. First of all, this is from the raptitude.com blog. I don't know much about the author. He says, my name is David. And, you know, this is a blog about getting better at being a human being. But this is such good advice that I felt like, yeah, I I really want to share this with you just on the off chance that it's something that you would find useful. And he says, uh, David says, my brain, like all brains, houses an unbelievable quantity of remembered information. And a huge amount of that information is stuff I've watched on television. Now, he says, I've never been exactly a fan of the Oprah Winfrey show, but I've surely seen several hundred hours of it. For years after it went off the air, I kept remembering a particular insight that Oprah shared once. And he says, I forget the context, but Oprah was amazed to realize that she didn't have to answer the phone just because it was ringing. Now, think about that for just a moment. When the phone rings, do you, oh, well, I got to take this, you know, no matter what? Even if it's an unknown number, even if it says scam likely? I think a lot of us do. We don't want to miss out, right? Fear of missing out. FOMO, we, we don't, uh, you know, this could be important. This could be Publishers Clearinghouse notifying me that they've got a million-dollar check to bring me. Yeah, probably not. But David says this was a significant insight to him Not because answering the phone is a particularly difficult task, but it meant that there was an invisible freedom there, which somehow he didn't realize that he had. Even if he still answered every call, it felt like a choice. Before that, it was kind of a master-slave type of relationship in which some remote person could push buttons and force my my body up onto its feet, perhaps tearing me away from, you know, a Star Trek rerun or something like that. So he says, I'm slowly grasping another overlooked freedom, which is the freedom to let people be right, or at least feel right, even though I think they're wrong. So when someone tries to tell the world Crash is a brilliant film or that evolution is just a theory, he says, I forget that I'm free to let them continue to think so. Now he says, I gather I have a long history of arguing my views, even when I'm not sure why I'm doing it. One time I was respectfully disagreeing with a coworker about something, and after a particularly good point I made, his tone went from sporting to angry. And he said, damn, you are one argumentative person. 
I told him he was wrong, but later wondered for a few seconds if indeed I was argumentative. <laughs> no, he was the argumentative one. Otherwise, he would have realized that I was right. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm remembering a conversation I had with one of my teenagers <laughs> a while back. Why are you arguing with us? I'm not arguing. Okay. Well. <laughs> All right. Anyway, David says this was before the internet was omnipresent in our lives, before it started joining us in the bathroom, back when going online was still an activity you did for part of the day rather than an additional mode of global perception that we can activate at any moment. The typical person experienced far fewer moments in which it felt appropriate to argue a point beyond what politeness allows. But he says today, it's alarmingly easy to find yourself antler-locked with some remote, faceless person who's trying to tell you that universal health care is a communist plot while you're waiting for your potato to finish microwaving. And he says this facelessness turns up our impulse to argue even more. You might have noticed it's a lot less pleasant to argue with someone when you can see their eyes. Now, he says, I suppose many of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You see a statement you don't agree with or you know to be factually wrong, and it creates no urge in you to correct, illuminate, or scold even in your head. You could hear someone praising Nancy Grace as a selfless defender of the vulnerable or arguing that the Godfather 3 was as good as the others, yet feel no desire to try to get them to stop thinking that. You're wise enough to know that fighting the good fight in, an, in internet comment threads is almost always pure indulgence and just gives ignorance a reason to sink anchors and get louder. But he says many of us aren't so wise. And those argumentative souls among us that do engage, and there are zillions of us based on the comment totals on Facebook and YouTube alone, often believe that we are somehow actually changing minds, actually eradicating ignorance and thoughtlessness. We aren't indulging in a destructive or at least useless pastime. We're saving the world from wrongness, one faceless Reddit user at a time. He says it's not just okay to engage in these little conflicts. It's, it's a moral imperative. We can't just allow ignorance to go on unopposed. The Internet, well, the whole world really, but it's easiest on the Internet, must be patrolled for bad beliefs. I got to tell you, the first time I read this essay, this stung because I recognized, oh my gosh, he's describing exactly what I've been doing and am doing. And it was like, ooh, okay, got to muster a bit of courage here and I'm going to read on. So David says, of course, it seldom occurs to us that we're wrong. Maybe all my sources are incorrect. Maybe we do swallow eight spiders a year in our sleep. But he says, in the heat of enthusiastic wrong writing, it never occurs to you that you're the problem, or at least part of it. Being wrong feels exactly like being right, which is the sole feeling experienced by all parties in any argument about anything. So for those of us inclined to argue every point, it's easy to forget that we have the freedom to simply carry on with our lives and let wrong viewpoints stand. It's amazing how often it can seem like an exchange needs your input, the way a screaming kettle needs to be taken off the element. But it's not the same. A different viewpoint, no matter how egregious it seems, is no emergency. Civilization survived for over 10,000 years before you and I got here with our snarky corrections and condescending rebuttals, and we didn't exactly make a huge difference when we did arrive. He says it turns out we don't have to try to stop people from thinking what we don't want them to think, and that our energy is probably better spent elsewhere. In other words, it is possible, theoretically, to retire from belief patrol. 
Now, he says, I know beliefs have consequences in the real world. Harmful actions come from bad beliefs. I'm not claiming that we should never oppose anyone, never call anyone out, never engage with people who, we disagree, who disagree with us. He says, I just don't think that casually sparring with blowhards on social media or even in real life actually affects anyone's beliefs in a helpful way. He says, I think Richard Carlson's advice is probably an ideal motto for this, and that is, let others be right most of the time. Asserting and defending our views takes an enormous amount of mental energy and accomplishes little. Sometimes it's important and actually useful to take a stand in a conversation, but usually it's just kind of peace-destroying indulgence. By retiring from belief patrol, he says, I'm talking mostly about retiring from having non-face-to-face arguments in which there's no mutual respect. The moment the motivation slips from goodwill to ill will or annoyance, I'm done. So he says, I hope, I, I, I hope you'll notice the impulse before the words come out. It can be so automatic. Once you start to consider retirement, it's unnerving how attractive it is to say something, to throw in your, well, actually, <laughs> it's like being the hard-boiled vice TV cop whose family convinced him to retire, but then without realizing it, ends up embroiled in some wild crime adventure, following clues and chasing crooks across rooftops. He ends up back in that world, fist-fighting a drug dealer on top of a moving train, not because he consciously decided to go back to the grind, but because his detective instincts were sharper than his awareness of what he was doing. And so David says, well, we'll see how things go in retirement. Already I'm noticing how often the impulse comes up. I've deleted so many half-written Reddit replies that I wonder if I ever contributed anything other than contradiction and snark. But he says, I invite you to join me. If you're a longtime belief patrol veteran, let's leave the swashbuckling game for good and go play tennis. We can still express our views in a thousand other ways that aren't so indulgent and harsh. You have this freedom, and I don't blame you if you didn't see it. Anyway, he says, I can tell you it's way better to be retired, but I won't argue the point. Okay, there's a lot of wisdom in this, and and, and fortunately, it's, it's a kind of wisdom I had to learn the hard way. But there is nothing that sets you free like losing the need to win a discussion. And I'll just remind you, if you're, if you're seeking truth, which I assume you are, you wouldn't be listening to a program like this if you weren't. If you are seeking the truth and you are paying the price to understand what you know, you've already beat your toughest opponent. And that's yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to my sponsors. These are the folks who help to keep the wolf away from the door, so to speak, and make it possible for me to uh, spend my time as much as possible finding good quality sources of timely, credible information that's based more on principle than just on partisan talking points, and then pass those on to you. It's, by the way, it's something I take seriously. Some may say, well, that sounds like a great alternative to actually, you know, working for a living. But I know that there is a, there's a great thirst for truth out there. I also understand that for a lot of people, that's really not a priority. There are some people who are just like, no, this is too much. I don't want to know what you're sharing. And that's okay. We're all at different points in that journey out of the swamp of misinformation. So I'm not going to force somebody, no, 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 you take a chair and you sit and you listen to every word that I have to say. 
I assume if you're serious enough about really understanding the world, you're probably willing to encounter some things you don't really want to hear or viewpoints that, that push up against your mental boundaries. I know it's, it's something I've had to grow comfortable with, and, and I try to make it as, as seamless and, and as few jagged edges as possible, but, uh, but I'm not going to please all the people all the time. Now, having said that, I want to share with you an article that I saw recently that actually really caused me to stop and think. Because I, like a lot of people, I look forward to getting that nice fat tax refund, or at least I used to, back before I became just prosperous enough that Uncle Sam started holding his hand out and going, more, more, cut me a check. Well, I've got an article here from Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education. And when you hear his take on why a big tax refund shouldn't excite you, you'll actually start to understand that uh, you just made an interest-free loan to Uncle Sam. Peter Jacobson says, It's the dreaded season once again about this time of year. I usually write something about taxes. What can I say? After hours of working through my taxes, considering how much of my paycheck was eaten by the black hole of government projects, it's hard to stop thinking about our tax system. Unfortunately, our tax system is also widely misunderstood. He says you don't have to go far on the Internet to see people celebrating their big refunds or mourning their small refunds. And this impulse, while understandable, is misplaced. A big refund is not a good thing. But to understand why, you have to understand the idea of withholding. So why does the IRS issue tax refunds at all? Simply put, you get a refund because sometimes the IRS collects more money from you than you owe. Now, there's no reason our system has to allow for this, though. This system is called withholding. The idea is that government withholds some of your pay to pay estimated taxes and releases it back to you if too much was withheld. Now, do you realize before 1943, the U.S. government didn't collect taxes from paychecks? Instead, taxpayers received their full check and were able to put some of it away at the end of each year to pay their taxes. By the way, just for the record, I think if we went back to that system you would see people voting much differently than they do today. Right now, we're kind of conditioned to think of it as, well, yeah, there's a big chunk missing from my paycheck, but oh, it's just the way it is. If you had to actually write out that check or, or make that transfer, you would start realizing just how much government is eating of your productivity and your effort. Nevertheless, During World War II, the withholding system was devised as a way to further finance the war effort by taking money right away, rather than waiting until the end of the year, the government would have more cash on hand for wartime spending. Interestingly, economist Milton Friedman, often a champion of small government policies, was a key developer of the withholding scheme. Though Friedman never apologized for the system, he did did express regret that it continued into peacetime. At this point, you may be wondering, why does it matter? whether the government withholds the money. After all, if someone before 1943 owed $1,000 in taxes at the end of the year and set that money aside to pay taxes, why would it matter if the government, rather than the individual, held on to it till the end of the year? Either way, the taxpayer doesn't spend it, so who cares? Peter Jacobson says, well, first, there's the issue that the government could withhold too much money from someone's paycheck. In that case, if someone needs excess withheld money today, but the government's holding on to it until April, well, he's simply out of luck. This is one reason you don't want a big refund. All a big refund means is the government was holding on to a big chunk of your money all year, and you didn't have access to it. But this is only the beginning of the problem of government withholding. 
Another reason a big refund should bother you is it can literally translate to you being poorer than if you had a small refund. Why? Well, he says, remember, not having access to your money means you don't have the opportunity to use it today. So he says, imagine I give you two options. You can have $100 today or $100 in a year. Which is better? Now, even ignoring inflation, it's certainly best to have the money today. Why? Well, because if you get the money today, you could use it or you could simply hold on to it for a year. It's an all-around better option for this reason. The fact that money today is preferable to money tomorrow, to quote one of my previous articles, is what economists call the time value of money. A sum of money today is worth more than that same amount of money sometime in the future. In fact, you can see more evidence of this by thinking about borrowing money. When you or a business borrows money, you're accepting to receive a sum of money today, that's the loan, in exchange for paying back a larger sum of money in the future, which is the loan repayment plus interest. Now, when individuals pay interest, they're agreeing that $100 today is worth more than $100 a month from now. So now that we understand money today is worth more than money tomorrow, we can see why a big refund is such a problem. A $3,000 refund means the government withheld $3,000, which belonged to you all year. And the government was able to earn interest on this money while you were not. In other words, if you kept your money and put it in a 12-month certificate of deposit, which earned 3% annual interest, you'd be able to earn $90. And with that money withheld, you earn nothing. So if you got a huge refund, he says, don't celebrate. You should reflect instead. In the usual employment situation, employers have workers fill out a form which decides how much of their money gets withheld each year. This is called a W-4 form. It may be the case that when you did your W-4, you filled it out in such a way that too much is being withheld. A lot of people do that just, you know, for safety's sake. Well, I better make sure they have a little extra just in case. Now, Peter Jacobson says, A wise person reading this article might be tempted to find ways to get as little money withheld as possible. If a big refund means you gave the government an interest-free loan, then a negative refund must be a good way to earn extra interest, right? Unfortunately, no. While paying in a little bit of money at the end of the year means you are able to hold more money and earn more interest, the government makes sure to penalize you if you do this too much. Now, the rules vary on the situation, but if you underpay withholding taxes too much during the year, the government hits you with a penalty. Why would government penalize you for paying what you owe when you owe it rather than before you owe it? Well, the government also understands that they're able to earn more interest when they withhold more of your money. So to discourage people from minimizing withholding, they penalize anyone who underpays. Now, ironically, the government never pays out a bonus to people when they overpay through the year, regardless of the amount. Kind of amounts to a kind of heads-I-win-tails-you-lose double standard, whereby the onus is on the taxpayers to figure out how much they have to pay in. If you underpay, well, that's your fault, and the government penalizes you. If you overpay, ha, huh, that's also your fault, and the government will take the interest-free loan. Thank you very much. So if you have a $0 refund this year, Peter Jacobson says rejoice. It means you got to keep more of your own money, and you dodged giving an interest-free loan to Uncle Sam. I don't know about you, but that one uh, that one definitely raised a couple of eyebrows over here. I'm just like, man. And yeah, I I I'm in a position where I, I do I have my own company 
and and uh, technically, I guess I, I could be paying quarterly taxes, but the government wants me to estimate, well, you know, tell us how much you think you're going to earn and then send us that money, you know, which again amounts to an interest-free loan. I choose not to do that. I'm like, nope, I'll pay you when it's time to pay my taxes, knowing full well they're going to take a good chunk and they're going to ding me. It's not much. It's, I don't know, 250 bucks or something like that. My point is, it's worth it to me to pay the penalty because being a business, I can always find <clears throat> some offsetting deduction that I can take, a business expense or something like that. But uh, that whole part about giving Uncle Sam an interest-free loan, nope, I am absolutely opposed to it. Even if it costs me a little bit of money to avoid it, that's what I'm going to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'd like to encourage you, please, please take a moment. Go to my webpage, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes. Anywhere on there, you'll find show notes to, to choose from. Doesn't matter what day. At the bottom of the page is a subscribe button. It's going to ask you for an email. And once you put in your email and hit the send button, I will drop a copy of my show notes into your inbox each day that I do the program. I'm not going to spam you. I'm not going to share your email with anybody else. I won't sell it or give it away either. This is just a way for you to take a little bit deeper dive into some of the different topics that I cover, as well as learn a little bit more about some of the various guests that I have on from time to time. All right. I, I'm going to talk about a subject now that um, it's causing me a little bit of anxiety. And I mean, like I've, I've the last couple of nights, I've woke up in the middle of the night and this has been kind of running through my head. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I, I'm, I'm worrying about something over which I really have no control. But if you get the sense that the people who are in charge, right, the, the, the political class and whoever's pulling their strings from behind the scenes, they seem determined to run us headlong into World War III. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but if I can just put my cards on the table, yes, I believe the whole lot of them are evil enough and sociopathic enough that they would rather see the world go up in flames than actually be held accountable for some of the crimes that they have committed against humanity. And I'm thinking specifically over the last three years. So when I want to get a good assessment of what's going on, this much I know, I can't trust regime mouthpieces, which is most of our legacy media, most of the respectable news sources, which are little more than, you know, just outlets that are regurgitating, you know, press releases that were given to them by various government agencies or CIA plants. I want to check out Operation Mockingbird to get a little bit better feel on just how deeply the intelligence community affects the type of news that is reported and how we are led to believe a certain narrative about how things are unfolding. So I'm very grateful for commentators like James Howard Kunstler, who just calls it about as straight as anybody that I've seen. Now, look, he's human. I don't think the guy walks on water. I think he probably puts his pants on one leg at a time. But uh, I, I would be challenged to find very many commentators who can keep up with Kunstler on, uh, on his ability to size up the situation and, and just call it as it is. Now, I'm saying this with, with just to kind of build up the idea. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to, you know, make it a little little softer and a little easier to, to, to hear. He'll tell you how the cow chewed the cabbage. But 
I'm in that weird place right now where as disturbing as that truth may be, I would rather know those disturbing truths than uh, sit in my comfortable cocoon of uh, give me more warm, fluffy euphemisms that make me feel good and validate me and don't uh, really clue me in to what is going on, at least in the big picture sense. So let's zoom out to 30,000 feet and take a look at what's happening. His latest article from James Howard Kunstler, Between That Rock and the Hard Place, starts with a quote from the New York Times. This is from a couple of days ago, February 20th. The president has made American support for Ukraine the centerpiece of his argument for a revitalized alliance in Europe. And he had told advisors that he wanted to mark the first anniversary of the invasion as a way of reassuring allies that his administration remains committed. Kunstler says secret agent man Joe Biden turned up in Kiev Monday morning after landing in Poland and riding an overnight choo-choo train across the Ukraine frontier to avoid the hazardous pomp of landing Air Force One in a war zone. Now, one might try to guess the message Victoria Newland sent her errand boy to deliver. He says, my guess is that JB was there to tell Volodymyr Zelensky that the USA stands behind him 100%, an obvious whopper being exactly the opposite of the, devel- de- the developing reality that short of setting off nuclear Armageddon, there's really nothing the USA can do to prevent Russia from concluding our ill-conceived project on its own terms. Who better to deliver an arrogant falsehood than the master Scranton Joe who once battled and vanquished the tyrant Corn Pop? Remember last week, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, speaking out of the aperture between his uh, rear end cheeks, announced that Russia had lost strategically, operationally, and tactically in Ukraine. Now, this was after NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg announced rather clumsily that Ukraine's army was out of ammo, especially artillery shells. And the only remedy for that was for Europe to rebuild an armaments industry, which was a sideways and backwards of saying, forget about it. Now, one might also suppose that behind all this cognitive dissonance, the U.S. would be engaged in secret talks with Russia to arrive at some face-saving device for getting out of this mess. But really, what is our leverage for that? Can we threaten to put U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine? That would be channeling like channeling General George Armstrong Custer, don't you think? Apparently, all we're left with is a game of pretend, using the pretender-in-chief as the front. Kunstler says, I'd also venture to say that American voters are not so enthused about this Ukraine pageant as they seemed to be last summer when the yellow and blue flags popped up on front porches at every woked-up clam bake from Edgartown to Bar Harbor. Our Ukrainian proxies sure seem to be giving those Ruskies what for along the front lines in Donbass. Payback, you understand, for helping Donald Trump steal the 2016 election from she whose turn it was supposed to be. America's Amazonian Caesar in a pantsuit, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Well, the fall offensive by Ukraine was an illusion, alas, setting up its army for methodical decimation, now nearly complete. So, too, is all the talk of sending tanks in to save the day, and so, too, is the very existence of NATO as anything other than window dressing on an empty storefront. If blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines, as recently alleged by independent reporter Seymour Hirsch, smells like an attack on our supposed ally, Germany, then how is it not an attack on NATO, in which Germany is the centerpiece? And finally, why would Germany not be engaging in secret talks of its own with Russia behind America's back? Intrigue must be rife now throughout Europe, and Americans will not hear anything about it from a deep from its deep state-owned news media. Is there any reason why Europe could not live with a neutralized Ukraine? Of course not. 
Ukraine is in an uproar now simply because geniuses in the U.S. State Department thought it would be a good way to annoy and antagonize Russia. The project was insane from inception. The main result is that Europe will no longer have the natural gas it needs at a rational price to continue being an industrial society. One must conclude that NATO is looking for a way out of this, but there is no way out, except to declare by word or deed, directly or otherwise, that NATO has outlived the reason for its existence. Any sane analysis by Europeans would arrive at the same unnerving realization that the USA has become the enemy of NATO, not Russia. If all that is so, well, then Kunstler says a seismic shift is underway that will leave America hung out to dry on the Ukraine project. Germany will have to make a deal with Russia to rebuild the Nord Streams. What could the U.S. do about that? Impose sanctions on Germany, France, the Netherlands, and the rest of the bunch? Where does that leave Western Civ? James Howard Kunstler says, I'll tell you. It leaves Western Civ diminished. It leaves our country to stew in its own rancid economic and financial juices in abject isolation from basically the rest of the world. Fare thee well, hegemonic dream. Hello, multipolarity. It leaves Ukraine neutralized and no longer a problem. It leaves Russia able to feel secure in its borders and free to get on with being a normal nation. And it leaves Europe the hope that it can resume modern life a while longer with the familiar comforts and conveniences. He says the end of the Ukraine conflict also exposes the rotten web of globalist schemers who planted their operators in every niche of American life and all around Western Civ. George Soros's empire of meddling non-governmental organizations, Bill Gates' World Health Organization puppet show, the ridiculous World Economic Forum's network of stooges in high places from Justin Trudeau to BlackRock's Larry Fink. The end of the Ukraine conflict reveals the submission of the Democratic Party to nefarious interests intent on wrecking this country. Even the most benign end to the Ukraine conflict, such as, by default, Europe and Russia settling up on their own to stop the fighting, will be another humiliation for Joe Biden and the crew behind him, as bad as the last days in Kabul. Their other crimes await full disclosure, everything from treasonous bribery to the fraud and genocide around COVID-19. And Kunstler says, there will have to be a severe political realignment in America, but before that can happen... Expect many seasons of terrible disorder. Sorry, he's not ending on a high note, right? I mean, it's that's probably not giving you warm fuzzies like, oh, okay, well, then everything's going to be great. Well, let me sound a somewhat optimistic note. Things are going to be better. But they will be better on the other side of this horrible, corrupted mess collapsing under its own weight. And that means that every one of us is going to feel pain. I'm sorry. I wish it were otherwise. I truly do. I wish it's something that we could have taken the hit earlier on. I don't want to see my grandkids and my kids having to be the ones slogging through this and having to do all the heavy lifting. But I feel pretty confident in making the prediction. Much harder times are coming. That doesn't mean the end of the world. This has happened On a pretty regular basis, about every 80 to 100 years, you see fourth turnings play out, and there's always big crisis as a part of it. That's what we're experiencing right now. That crisis is building to its climax, and it's going to be tough for all of us. So let me give you my vote of confidence. You and I are up to the challenge. In fact, I believe we were born for this time, and we will make a difference we were born to make. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Final segment of the show here. Three articles I want to touch on here very briefly. And, hey, here's some good news. I feel like I owe you this after, uh, you know, figuratively dropping the bomb on you in that last segment. But here's the good news. The Mississippi legislature has voted overwhelmingly to end sales taxes on gold and silver. Also, platinum and palladium coins and bullion. That's good news for this reason. This is uh, this is helping to make sound money popular once again. Now, this is, of course, contingent on whether Governor Reeves signs the bill next week. Um, even if he chooses not to, it, it passed by a, a very overwhelming vote, meaning it would automatically go into law but it would exempt sales of sound money from state sales tax. I mean, do you feel like you ought to pay sales tax every time you, uh, you know, if you give someone a dollar bill, well, you should pay sales tax on that, you know? It, no. But somehow we, we treat gold and silver as if, well, it's just, you know, it's this commodity. It's just an item, just like a, I don't know, can of coffee or something like that. So here are just a few of the reasons why Eliminating sales taxes on gold and silver is actually good public policy. Number one, levying sales taxes on precious metals is inappropriate. Sales taxes are usually levied on final consumer goods. That would be things like computers, shirts, and shoes. They carry sales taxes because the consumer is consuming the good. Precious metals are inherently held for resale, not consumption. So the application of sales taxes would be inappropriate. Also, studies have shown that taxing precious metals is a very inefficient form of revenue collection. The results of one study involving Michigan show that any sales tax proceeds a state collects on precious metals are likely surpassed by the state revenue lost from conventions, businesses, and economic activities driven out of the state. Also, taxing gold and silver harms in-state businesses. It's a competitive marketplace, so buyers will take their business to neighboring states like Alabama or Louisiana, which have have eliminated or reduced sales tax on precious metals. So that would undermine Mississippi jobs. Levying state sales tax on precious metals harms in-state businesses who will lose business to out-of-state precious metals dealers. Also, taxing precious metals is unfair to certain savers and investors. Gold and silver are held as a form of savings and investment. Mississippi doesn't doesn't tax the purchase of bonds or stocks or ETFs or currencies and other financial instruments. Also, taxing precious metals is harmful to citizens attempting to protect their assets. You realize most purchasers of precious metals aren't fat cat investors. Most people who buy precious metals do so in small increments as a way of saving money. During a time of inflation is especially a way to protect their value and to protect their money from the danger of inflation, which is eroding the purchasing power of every dollar. Precious metals investors are purchasing precious metals as a way to preserve their wealth against the damages of inflation. And inflation, of course, harms the poorest among us, including pensioners, Mississippians who are on fixed incomes, wage earners, savers, and more. So, uh, 2023, you've got uh, bills to restore sound constitutional money introduced in Alaska, Iowa, West Virginia, South Carolina, Missouri, Minnesota, Tennessee, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Kansas, and more. That's That's encouraging. And I'm not trying to sell you precious metals by mentioning this. I'm just saying, you know, if you're not considering some kind of a plan B 
for the money that you have in the bank, or at least put taking a portion of what you have in savings and putting it into something tangible that you can actually hold in your hands and control, you might be in for a pretty unpleasant awakening here in the not-so-distant future. Something to think about. Also, got a great article here about uh, the gun banning and social contempt. This is from W.R. Wordsworth. In attempting to make sense of these things, he says, one should always look to the insights of the wise and the experienced, but one should also heed the occasional ill-considered outburst of loudmouthed idiots, since these two can be quite enlightening. A ranting partisan sometimes gives the game away by thoughtlessly blurting out the cynical thinking behind their own lousy ideas, and such inadvertent and ill-advised slips make it far easier to emotionally reverse-engineer partisan stances that more skilled advocates all too often succeed in dressing up as serious proposals. I love the example that he gives here. When Republicans took control of the House of Representatives back in 1994, Democratic Representative Charlie Rangel reacted by exclaiming, It's not spick or N-word anymore. Instead, Republicans say, Let's cut taxes. Now, Rangel's remark underscored the absurdity of treating every policy difference as grounds for racial accusation by deploying the strategy in a ridiculous concept, context rather, thereby exposing the emptiness of screaming racist at everything. His little eruption gave away the standard democratic approach and highlighted its absurdity. When, the Russia, when Russia invaded Ukraine, many experts cautioned there could be no solution to the crisis as long as Vladimir Putin remained in power. Lindsey Graham then unhelpfully ran to every hot mic he could find and yelped himself hoarse, demanding Vladimir Putin be assassinated. Now, Graham's asinine chest-thumping only succeeded in making any would-be Putin assassin look like an American pawn. A more recent example comes to us from a fairly reliable source of spontaneous stupidity, Geraldo Rivera. A few weeks ago, the topic of gun control came up on Fox News' The Five, this prompted Rivera to unleash a stream of emotionally infantile musings. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is no legitimate reason to have an AR-15. So intoned the man who just months earlier had pleaded only to prohibit anyone under the age of, eight, of 21 rather, from owning this particular kind of firearm. Now, be that as it may, Rivera's, uh, Rivera's outburst rather involved two elements. First is that guns look scary to, that look scary to Rivera should be seized from their lawful owners, because anyone owning a firearm or the mere, th I'm sorry, because Rivera once suffered a gunshot wound and that so traumatized him that the mere thought of anyone owning a firearm capable of inflicting such a wound is completely outrageous. So the civilian possession of commonly owned firearms should be forbidden in order to salve Rivera's recollected trauma. But such narcissism scarcely merits uh, refutation. But it's worth noting as a psychological oddity. Childish emotional callbacks are not a sound basis for a national policy. But Rivera had more to share with his panelists. Seems he had solved the mystery behind the commercial appeal of AR-15-style firearms. It isn't the firearm's ergonomic design, the ease of use, the ease of cleaning, light recoil, or reliability that's behind the sale of some 16 million units. No, it's something much more vulgar. An AR-15, he scornfully observed, makes macho the people who possess it. Oh, look at me, I'm a big deal. So, owning a firearm to which Rivera objects should be forbidden because such ownership is, in the seasoned judgment of a mature and sophisticated observer like Rivera, an adolescent masculine display that warrants nothing but mockery. Now, one might ask, why waste any mental energy on the rantings of a fading carnival barker like Rivera? 
Wordsworth says we have in the past pointed out the twisted priorities and barely hidden contempt that must animate a man who simply could not bring himself to see any policy implications in an egregious murder committed by an illegal alien, but never misses an opportunity to leverage isolated incidents to demand the forced disarming of all Americans. Yet it seems worthwhile to assess the merits of Rivera's charge that gun ownership, or at least of guns Rivera finds scary looking, is inherently pathological, a symptom of toxic masculinity and that this pathology should be actively stamped out. See, for one thing, it it illuminates the arrogance that drives the gun banning lobby. In the view of Rivera and his compatriots, the Second Amendment is not the codification of a natural right. It is an incomprehensible indulgence unwisely extended to a bunch of icky, low-rent people who are manifestly undeserving of any right that they might look somewhat silly exercising. This blatant, indiscriminate social contempt, this snobbery, is what lies at the core of Rivera's bigoted remarks. But let's for a moment treat Rivera's outburst with more seriousness than in fact it deserves and ask... Is this contempt justified? So imagine a typical adolescent, a boy in his teens. He's taken an interest in guns and imagines growing up to build a collection. He looks forward to spending time improving his marksmanship at the range. If his parents are supportive, they may get him a BB gun at a young age. As that boy grows, he learns gun safety, exercises responsibility, abides by the laws, and as he grows older, he avoids doing anything in his life that would jeopardize his eventual full participation in the right that the Second Amendment guarantees. This behavior is not part of that social menace. Healthy masculinity involves the disciplined application of force to legitimate targets in appropriate ways at appropriate times to an appropriate degree. So gun ownership can be and often is a benign component in an individual's growth into a mature and responsible person. Gun ownership properly cultivated is a worthy aspiration. And masculine accomplishment is not a disease. It's no accident that gun owners tend to be more law-abiding than people who do not own guns. The point being here that the smearing and scapegoating of millions of lawful, responsible gun owners for crimes in which they do not in any way contribute... While violent, feral, urban criminals are coddled and released by anarchist district attorneys, it's just one instance of the ongoing political campaign to pathologize the normal and normalize the pathological. Beautifully stated. And of course, there is a link to this article, which you can check out for yourself in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.